Hello and welcome to A Piece of Us, a four-part series from the Open University in Ireland in which voices beyond political institutions explore the impact of the Good Friday Agreement on arts, sports, the community and their hopes for the future of Northern Ireland. I'm Jordan Kenny, and we hope this episode will act as a time capsule. We get a snapshot of the current standing of the Good Friday Agreement from expert Daniel Holder. We discuss the impact of the Good Friday Agreement and the future with three young journalists. And we also hear your hopes and dreams for the next 25 years. Right, so a full house for this episode. I've got three people staring at me in the studio here. Uh, Let's start on my left with Claudia. Introduce yourself. Tell me who you are and where you come from. My name is Claudia Savage. I am 23. I'm from Clyland, County Tyrone, and I'm a journalist with Press Association. Nice one. In the middle. I'm Neve Campbell. I'm 28. I'm from a place called Calatial, near Dingannon in County Tyrone, and I am a journalist for the Belfast Telegraph. And last but definitely not least. Hello, uh, I'm Matt. I'm 32. I'm the oldest one here, I think. Um, I'm from Fermanagh, Enniskillen, and I am a journalist with BBC. Nice one. So we've got four journalists in a room. What could go wrong? <laughs> uh, so we're going to talk a bit about your hopes and dreams for the next 25 years and hear what opportunities you feel the Good Friday Agreement has afforded you. But first, we're going to hear from Daniel Holder, a human rights expert who'll talk about the Good Friday Agreement through that lens. This love will weaken all you know. Daniel, thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. So for anyone who maybe doesn't know who you are, introduce yourself for us. So I am Daniel Holder. I work for the Committee on the Administration of Justice, CAJ, better known by its initials, which is the principal human rights group uh, within Northern Ireland. For anybody who doesn't maybe fully understand or know what the Good Friday Agreement is, could you briefly summarise it for us? Well, look, I suppose the simplest way of describing it is that it is a peace agreement. Um, and it's an agreement that was both reached by the majority of political parties in Northern Ireland, but it's also an international agreement between the British and Irish governments, which actually is enshrined with the United Nations as a treaty. So it actually forms part of the legal obligations, the international legal obligations of of the UK and, and Irish governments. They're sort of duty-bound to implement the bits of it that correspond to them. Uh, that happening in practice, of course, is sometimes a different matter. What's the current standing of the Good Friday Agreement? I suppose that the, the model of the Good Friday Agreement was one of power sharing. And we, as a human rights organization, were optimistic in the sense that human rights was really mainstreamed throughout the Good Friday Agreement. It was the blueprint mm-hmm. for how you could prevent the type of abuses of power that had occurred previously in Northern Ireland and had uh, fueled and sowed the seeds for conflict. So the idea was, the core provisions in the agreement were, there was a couple of things. One is, which was implemented, that you would incorporate the European Convention on Human Rights, the principal European from the Council of Europe, nothing to do with the EU, Mm -hmm. human rights uh, instrument into domestic legislation here, meaning you could directly enforce rights in court, but also that ministers, um, MLAs passing laws and things could not do anything that mm-hmm. breached the European Convention. And if they did, you had a direct route to court. That was very successful. The current British government are still, again, toying over tearing that up, mm-hmm. the, the Human Rights Act, um, which would be a breach of the Good Friday Agreement, but also an incredibly irresponsible and dangerous thing to do. 
So we've talked through there a bit about what the Good Friday Agreement actually is, but talk to me about parts of the Good Friday Agreement that haven't yet been delivered. What are those? primary thing that's missing is really the Bill of Rights for, for Northern Ireland. That was the, the big sort of safeguard over, over power sharing. But there are other things. I well, mean, there was a duty. Ex- I was going to say, explain. People hear that phrase, Bill of Rights, all the time in the media and in papers and wherever else. What does Bill of Rights actually mean? There's a reasonable familiarity, I think, with the Human Rights Act that the sort of you have legally binding rights like rights to freedom of expression, um, rights to a fair trial, that if they are breached by government ministers or by legislation, you can go to court and stop the breach. That's how that's how powerful the instrument is. Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland was completely on that model, except it was to include a range of other rights that wouldn't be within the European Convention, things like the right to housing, which obviously is relevant to preventing past practices of, of gerrymandering and other things that were among the causes of of conflict here. In terms of the other things that haven't been delivered, there's a number of things out of the St. Andrew's agreement that, that, that were brought in. One of them would be an anti-poverty strategy. Anti-poverty strategy on the basis of objective need was was a legal duty placed on the on the on the Stormont government. Um hasn't yet been delivered. We took a judicial review back in 2015 that found it found the ministers acted unlawfully and not progressing. Um, an anti-poverty strategy. That's something that needs set up. Um, the Irish Language Act has been legislated for, but not commenced, but it's certainly well below the commitments at the moment that were within the the Good Friday Agreement. There's also strategies for Irish and Ulster Scots, which were legal obligations. There are elements of of policing reform, particularly in covert policing, that were that 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 still haven't been delivered. So how detrimental is that that parts of it haven't actually been fully delivered on? Well, I think it set the seeds for the continued dysfunction and collapse of the Assembly, that you don't have those rights-based safeguards. Now, we saw in places like North Belfast the re-emergence of questions around things like gerrymandering, not building houses in a particular place on the sense that it would change electoral outcomes and because the wrong side of the community would live in them, it would change the geography of the area. That's the kind of thing that the right to housing, if it was enshrined in a and a Bill of Rights would have prevented. In a sense, you've got a situation whereby you don't have objective constraints on power in the way that was envisaged, but you do have these very subjective political vetoes, and they've allowed measures even when, and marriage equality is a a good example, even when you have a majority within the cabinet, within what's called the, the executive and within the assembly, for a particular positive action measure, it can still be blocked by by a minority, and that's not what was originally envisaged. This was meant to be objectively based around human rights standards. You're meant to have a much more formal role for the sort of human rights and equality commissions and in that process within the Assembly. It just, it hasn't happened. Um, and I think that does lie at the foot of why the, the institutions have have failed to, to function even when they, they have been established and they, they haven't delivered in the way they could have done. So where can we learn more about that? We've actually produced a matrix of everything that was committed to and everything that's been delivered and haven't. And let me tell you, it runs into several dozen pages. Well, you can find that matrix on our Open Learn hub if you search Open Learn Good Friday Agreement online. Daniel, thank you for taking us through that detail. This love will weaken all you know. So guys, a bit more on the Good Friday Agreement then from your perspective. 
Neve, opportunity-wise, do you think there's things that you've experienced or gone through in your career that wouldn't have happened if not for the Good Friday Agreement? I think so, definitely. Like I've grown up, I went to a Catholic grammar school. And then when I left and I went to university in Belfast, a lot of people where I'm from would probably be considered a nationalist area. Um, and whenever I went but through school as well, like we did cross-community things and we got to meet like people from our school would go to the Protestant grammar school for different A-levels and they would come down to us. And then whenever I went to uni in Belfast, that opened my eyes up more because I got to meet people from Protestant backgrounds and just different backgrounds in general. And I think a lot of people, older people in my family and even just from my area would have never really had that. Like before the Good Friday Agreement and particularly during the height of the Troubles, you just, it was, it still is tribal in Northern Ireland. I'm not saying that it isn't, but it was way much more so back then. So even to be able to be given those opportunities through university, through education, through sport and just through the peace process in general. Um, I think that in itself is a big opportunity that we take for granted because we don't know anything different. Talking about, you know, the media industry as a whole, looking to the future, Matt, what do you see as maybe the biggest challenges facing journalism and the media industry at the minute? That's a big question. Um, I think we'd all probably agree that we're kind of living in the age of disinformation at the minute. So there's so much fake news and like even during COVID, you just had to go on like three Facebook comments. All you needed was a smartphone to be an expert in virology or whatever. Um, There's a lot of that. I think the challenge will be putting out authoritative news um, and not kind of, I don't know, giving into fake news, deep fakes. There's a lot of, I think a lot of people don't realise when they're going on their phone and seeing stuff on social media, they just think it's 100% fact. But I suppose it'll be our jobs in the future to counter that. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you use to, as journalists, kind of what way do you see your role in countering disinformation? I, like, I agree with Matt there. I'm even thinking like, like my mum and dad are in their 50s and 60s and like they actually come to me sometimes. My mum's like, oh, I saw this headline, like, is this true? My mom does the same, and it's wild. You're like, it's wild please because turn your phone off. <laughs> when you're growing up, they're the ones telling you what's what's right and what's wrong, and they don't know because they're not. They didn't grow up with, and it's. I just think the law and journalism and just society in general can't really keep up with how fast technology is moving. And we grew up on it, so we can obviously, and we work in it now, so we can you know tell things a bit better, but. I have to go to my mum and dad and be like, no, that's not real. I'll tell you why. That's not a reputable source, blah, blah, blah. But then I'm thinking, what about all the people who don't have journalists as as family members? Um, and then a lot of people are very, you know, they don't trust journalists um, as well. So they think that we're not to be trusted. And even if we do try to tell them, you know, this is why. So I do think it's, it's hard to counteract that. But like Matt says, it is something that's important to do going forward. Um, and I think I think it is just the case where journalism in general needs to to keep up and move, move as fast as technology is moving, but it's easier said than done. And I know one way of trying to keep up with technology that a lot of journalists are using is TikTok, <laughs> and I know you do that, and also yourself, Claudia, you're all over TikTok with your news updates, right? Yes, I, I love doing them. The reason I started doing them was because, like, I have two younger sisters, and, like, we've been having the discussion for years in media about whether or not 
uh, Print is dead. And I I, th- I think print is going to have like a bit of a resurgence, like vinyl players and like people will think it's cool to start reading newspapers again. But so vintage. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact is now, like we're moving past that and we're talking about whether or not broadcast is dead. Like if people are watching TV, they're watching Netflix. Like people don't even watch the news on TV anymore because people don't like... There are people now that don't even have, like, don't have free view. Yeah. You know what I mean? People don't have broadband. They'll just have, like, like a, like a fire stick and, like, Netflix. Um, so now we're getting into discussion about whether or not broadcast news is dead. And um, as, as a journalist, does that worry you or concern you? I don't think so, because I think you can always just, like, you can adapt to the new medium. Like I said, like, I've been trying to do the news on TikTok and, like, saying it, in a, like, because it's my personal page, like, I try to, like, explain things in a way that's easier. But you can see, like, major news... Like, all the major news corporations now are adapting their content for TikTok. Like, there's there's whole job roles which are about taking horizontal video and making it look good, like, in a, in a portrait mode so that you can be used on those type of platforms. Do you find in Northern Ireland especially, have you had people maybe react badly to you being a journalist? You, yeah, well, you definitely get trolls emailing you and whatnot. Sometimes I find you're... There's like an unwritten rule, you don't reply to the trolls. But sometimes I find if you do it the odd time in like a very constructive way, they nearly like freak out and they're like, oh, this person noticed me and replied to me. Like, I'm not invisible, you know, like, and I'm just like, I have a, I have a voice and a, like I'm a person too. But yeah, I've had people before, like you say, not maybe distrust, but they're just like, why does the media say this or why does the media do this? And I always sort of say, do you think the media that we are all in a WhatsApp group chat and we're all conspiring to, we all get given this note like, okay, today we're going to push this narrative. It's not real. Like I'm like, the media is like, there's there's right-wing outlets, there's left-wing outlets, there's broadcasters, print, there's everything. Everyone has different perspectives and different papers, for example, will take different angles on different stories. Mm. I think it's important to like, get a rounded view of all of that but I've had that before and I always just sort of make that make that joke and try to like say to them like no like I just and I explain to them how we factually find things and also I find like if you're reporting on things politicians say people nearly like take it as that's your view I'm like no 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 if you read it I'm just literally reporting on what they said I'm also not saying what they said is factual and then you know you go and try to like truth truth check what they say and things like that so um yeah I do you think I think people I think social media too, because there's a lot of ways for people to be anonymous. And I personally have a gripe with that. Like, I think people should have to put their passport details and things like that into stuff like Twitter and Facebook to authenticate their um, their profiles. I know it can be hard to be kind of answer this in a general sense because there's so many different young people from different backgrounds and um, upbringings. But how do you think young people in Northern Ireland perceive the Good Friday Agreement at the minute, Claudia? As I think there's a lot more, I think there needs to be a lot more education on it. Like, it's not taught in schools in any in any meaningful way. It's sort of like, this is what happens so that the troubles aren't happening anymore. And even that sense of, I feel like when the Good Friday Agreement is taught, it's very, like, a lot of people my age would think of it as, like, as, like, the full stop on the troubles. Like, the end. That was it. And then, and then everything was great. And that was it. Which again, I think sort of negates the work that people like of of my generation have to do to maintain that and to like sort of keep make sure that the the promises that were made in the Good Friday Agreement are fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a, a lot of people sort of think of it as that like full stop, the end, the troubles are over now, um, rather than thinking of it as something that's something that's a living and breathing document that we all 
have to keep engaging with to to make sure that our institutions and like more widely our political culture is something that's uh, that that correlates to what the Good Friday Agreement intended for Northern Ireland to be. Mm. Matt, what is your thoughts in terms of how people in Northern Ireland at the minute look at the Good Friday Agreement? I did my GCSEs, obviously a bit back further back than the rest of you. <laughs> but again, like we weren't taught the troubles at all. I think a bit of Easter Rising, that was it. Um, so I didn't really ever know what the Good Friday Agreement was. I never grew up in a very political house or that was all kind of remote to us. We never talked about it. So it wasn't until I was a bit older that I knew what it was. And I would say if people aren't being taught it in schools, they'd be much the same now where it's just very much a thing in the past. And like Claudia was saying, I'm sure a lot of people think it was a document, it was done, full stop. It got brought us peace, it's great. But Neve was saying, like, we are discussing it at the minute and seeing it is a living, breathing thing, like you were saying, Claudia. It could be, there's people already calling for it to be amended. They want reform in government. As journalists, do you feel a responsibility almost to be explaining the past and to be still talking about the past in reports and things like that and bringing up the Good Friday Agreement and explaining it to a younger generation? Or do you think we don't so much need to concentrate on that anymore? There's a really good quote, and I can't remember who said it, but I just know it's on the side of the Garrick Bar in Belfast City Centre. <laughs> and it says something along the lines of a wise person, something like a wise person keeps one eye on the past and a blind person keeps both eyes. So I always really like that quote because I think it's really important to remember because it's we're all from here and it's your heritage at the end of the day, like it's your history. So I think, and I think Northern Ireland is so unique, I think, no matter whether you identify as British or Irish, I think we are totally unique in that we are different from people in the Republic of Ireland and we are different from people in mainland Britain because only we get it. Um, and I think we have a very dark sense of humour because of the troubles and everything as well because that's how we've been able to cope and I think we're different in that way too. So I think it is really important to teach it and it's really important that people know about it. But I think it's important that people don't focus too much on on why it had to come about and be better about it and focus on the... The, good, the goodness that came from it and, and keeping that going. Mm. Is that something you'd agree with, Claudia? Yeah, I think it's, it's especially now, as you said, like with, um, at a time when, when divisions are seemingly starting to arise again, that the Good Friday Agreement was something, it was something for everyone in Northern Ireland to be proud of. Like every, every no matter what side of the divide you're from, no matter what party or politician you were affiliated to, they all had some part in, in helping to bring that to fruition. So it's not it's something that should be like demonized by anyone because I say it's 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 a uniting thing for people from this part of the world because it was it was everyone's project and even when you, like at the referendum everyone had to vote for it. Like every single person in Northern Ireland at that time had something to do with bringing the Good Friday Agreement together. So it's it's I'd say it's, it should be a should be a rallying point especially like now on the anniversary. Mm. Um, what do you think about that, Matt? Yeah, 100%. I think it's something it should be taught, it should be celebrated. Um, I think coming up now with the anniversary, people are going to maybe take a step back and realise how lucky we were to have it and celebrate it for what it was and keep it going as well. Um, I know it's used sort of internationally as an example of how peace can be achieved. We should be very proud of that, I think. Especially younger people should be like, yes, like you were saying, we are a unique part of the world. I want to talk about the words unionist and nationalist. Do you think people are almost afraid to label themselves as one or the other these days? I think people 
I think because of social media, sometimes people are afraid to say whether they're one or the other because they're afraid of the abuse they'll get. Because unfortunately, and I just even think some of the articles I write and the rows that people have under Facebook on it, um, you know, and it is like Claudia was saying, people saying dairy, and then someone says, no, it's not dairy, it's London dairy, blah, blah, blah. And like you're saying, like you can call it whatever you want. Um, you can say it in Ulster Scots and you can say it in Irish too. Uh, but what I think is important is that, and this is where social media, uh, people on social media, the trolls on social media aren't getting this. Like, for example, this week, um, there's a young unionist activist, Joel Keyes, and he, I think he attended the SLB party conference and he he received some abuse from um, hardline, hardline unionists from his own background. And he said, you know, how, if you only ever, like he said this himself, I'm paraphrasing, but how are you only, how are you ever going to get anywhere if you only talk to people with the same views as you? And I just think that was class. I think that's so progressive. And I do think younger people are are bridging that divide. Um, and it's great that he can come out and say that I'm a proud unionist and this is what I believe. And he can debate that with nationalists in a, in a structured and educated way. And no one has to shout at each other. No one has to row um, and talk about the benefits and the pros and cons of both. Um, so, yeah, I think it's important that people are still comfortable to say what they are. You don't have to be completely down the middle. I think maybe so- social media can can bring out the worst in people that, that say they are that, but it can also go the other way and make people afraid to say it because of the abuse they might get. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's definitely important because they're... We're, we're sort of half and half in this country at this stage too. Um, so it's important to to let people know that's what you are, but know that you can be accepted for that as well. Mm, Matt, what do you think? Yeah, uh, I think both terms still have relevance. I was actually shocked when I moved to Belfast. So when I grew up in Fermanagh, I was quite sheltered. I didn't really know what a unionist or a nationalist was. Mm. and went through integrated education, like I said, very early. And then moved away. And then when I came back to Belfast, I didn't realise how strong identity was here. Mm. Um I live on the Newtonards Road. So, like every 12th you see it, people all my age, hundreds of people who are proud unionists out enjoying themselves and proud to call themselves unionists. And I think I was just really sheltered growing up. And even with the people now that I'm hanging about with, we'd all be quite middle of the road, liberal, wouldn't, you'd think those labels are outdated. But when you look around you in certain areas of Belfast, you're like, no, they're definitely still very relevant and people are proud to use them and they should be allowed to use them. Mm -hmm. It is interesting though that as much as like those terms are still relevant, there is like the the increase in popularity of alliance. I think yeah. shows that people are there is a bit of a backlash. I think mm-hmm. towards that. Mm-hmm. I am um, because something that we were talking about um, earlier, but saying about how people, what people of, of the ceasefire generation think of the Good Friday Agreement, but people might so people my age have never known the conflict but what they have known is the failures of power sharing mm. they've known a storm of government that for a lot of their lives has not been functional and that's why I think there can be a bit of a kickback against the green and orange politics uh, and again even even looking forward for the next 25 years like Alliance really want uh, to to break down some of those barriers in terms of community designation for people that don't feel that way so as much as those terms are still useful and still relevant and still important. For a lot of people, they're questioning where, what those, what role those labels play moving forward. So I think that's going to be really interesting to be in the next couple of years as well. So in just a minute, guys, we're going to hear from different people telling us what their hopes and dreams are for the next 25 years. But I wanted to hear yours first. Claudia, I'll start with you. What are your hopes and dreams for the next 25 years? I hope we can establish a culture where everyone's identity is respected and 
even going beyond unionist and nationalist, just where a culture and, and a place, part of this world where everyone's accepted and welcomed. Neve, what about you? I hope that we'll have a lot more integrated education and mixed housing. And Matt, to finish with you. Yes, yeah, same. I'd like to see continuation of the peace. Hopefully we're in a better position 25 years on. Um, like see a bit more stability in government. Um, just Northern Ireland being celebrated a bit more. Like mm-hmm. we've great tourism, film industries. There's so much potential for great economic growth here as well. Nice one. And like I said, we're going to hear from lots of other people on their hopes and dreams. So give this a listen. Hello, I am Nandi Jola. And in 25 years, I hope Northern Ireland will become an intercultural society. I am Carl Kellen. In 25 years, I hope to be living in a united Ireland. I also hope that public services remain free at the point of delivery. I am Sarah O'Neill, and in 25 years, I hope that we will have grown in confidence, realised how wonderful this place could be, and reached our full potential. I am Grania Taggart, and in 25 years, I hope we are all living and gaining in a society with rights and true equality at its core. We all win and benefit in a society based on rights. I'm Ellen Fern, and in 25 years, I would like to see a Green New Deal, a real solution to the climate crisis, and more hope for the future. My name is Patricia Lynn, and in 25 years, I want to see not only peace sustained in Northern Ireland, but a move from peace towards prosperity. Hi, my name is Fiona Dorn, and in 25 years, I would like to see a truly equal, open, and community-based Northern Ireland. So it's Mr. Kermit Gillivan, August Insa Fiku Glenna Macroin, Owailum Sohi at Ha and a well mass, August Kyarta, a ka, August at the Frewi or Core, Karhamus August Kyarta. My name's Winnie Amma. I'm a singer, a songwriter, and a DJ. And in the next 25 years, I would love to see in society a real deep understanding of why diversity and equal opportunities are critical to a healthy and vibrant and prosperous society. I'm Robin Swan, the Unionist MLA for North Antrim. In 25 years' time, I want to see a Northern Ireland that is outward-looking, that's forward-looking, that has a health and an education service that we can be proud of and we can all be content to call this place home. In the next 25 years, I hope to see a strengthened and more prosperous union working together to create better jobs and tackle the collective global challenges that lie ahead. My name is Mia, and in the next 25 years, I hope that all children, no matter where they come from, have the same chances of success. That's it for this episode, and there's lots more to explore on our Open Learn Hub, which features music, art, and a series of guest essays. Search Open Learn Good Friday Agreement online to find it. Thanks for listening. Will we?